Jose, I say, Jose, it's time to wake up. Oh, buenos dias, senorita. My siestas are getting shorter and shorter. Hey, Michael, mi amigo, pay attention, it's Joe time. So it is. Pierre, you rascal, you. Let's put on the show. Mon ami, I am always ready, as you say, to put on the show. <whistles> oh, pardon, madame. That whistle was for my good friend, Fritz. Ach, to lieber, I almost fell out of my upper perch. We better start the show rolling. Wait, wait. We forgot to wake up the glee club. <laughs> ole, ole, it's showtime. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. To paraphrase what Sam the American Eagle would say, it's a salute to all things Walt Disney, but mostly Walt Disney World. A former cast member, a longtime lover of the parks, and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, Dave brings you his unique perspective about the Walt Disney World Resort. Now please remain quietly seated throughout our tour, and we ask that there be no eating, drinking, smoking, or flash photography. Our podcasters are frightfully sensitive to bright lights. So put on your virtual mouse ears, sit back, and relax, and enjoy the podcast. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Hey everyone, it's Dave again. How is everybody doing? You know, when Walt Disney uh, first started conceiving of Disneyland, he had a grand plan and he wanted to be very much unlike any other place on earth and really be a place where you could go and escape the everyday. And part of the way he envisioned accomplishing this was to have a sort of tour of the park uh, and ultimately he hit on the idea of a monorail, this futuristic looking vehicle that would uh, take guests around Tomorrowland and provide a panorama of part of the park. So he got uh, involved with a company called Alweg uh, that was experienced in mass transit and uh, building various models of the monorail, of monorail trains uh, to develop his trains for, Walt, for uh, Disneyland. When he conceived the idea for Walt Disney World, they, he extended the idea out. He really wanted to have the uh, trains that you could ride on uh, that to take you in and out of the parks. Now, as he looked at the entirety of the Florida project, Remember that there was a lot more going on, uh, and he had this, this much broader plan of things he was going to do with the Florida Project, and the monorail was just a piece of it. But as it evolved, and after Walt's death, it became something a little different, and it was just to provide entrance into the park. Uh, you know, in another podcast, we'll talk about the Florida Project and kind of how that all came together and maybe some of the, some of the things that changed in the vision there. But for now, we're going to focus on the monorail. Uh, so as the vision changed, the monorail became an iconic part of the park, um, and a later a route was added from the Transportation to Ticket Center, which was intended to be the hub of uh, all activities and monorail traffic, to Epcot, making this a broader part of Walt's original vision. So you could get from where you parked your car and left it to get into uh, the, uh, the theme park and then to this, uh, this prototype community of tomorrow. Now, I think, personally, the monorail has a certain futuristic feel to it, and it really is an incredible uh, thing, and it gives me a sense of wonder. It's one of my favorite machines that we have in, uh, in society today. When you look at it, it's really pretty remarkable. Um, so what I'd like to do on today's podcast is to talk about the monorail in some detail. Um, and my thanks to the author and former pilot at monorailyellow.com, even though the site doesn't exist anymore, uh, much of the technical detail contained in this podcast uh, came from his site. 
So Walt started with a uh, Mark I monorail at Disneyland, and Disney World uh, currently is using a Mark VI. Now, they use the uh, Roman numerals for it, so it's VI uh, in the uh, Mark VI nomenclature. And Disneyland has moved up to the Mark VII. Uh, the Seven is a very different-looking vehicle. It looks nothing like the original monorails. Actually, the one in Disneyland always looked a little different anyway, so I guess that kind of makes sense. Uh, and there's no word yet about what they're going to do with Disney World, if they're going to change out the monorail fleet or maybe make it something else, because they've had this one for a relatively, the Mark VI's for a relatively short amount of time. Relatively. Um, each new, new iteration between the Mark I's and the Mark VII's has uh, included some modifications to make them more efficient, allow for easier or more passenger flow, or to improve safety. Uh, there have been several companies contracted to build monorails over the years, and uh, Walt Disney Imagineering has also been involved in doing some reverse engineering uh, work on the uh, monorail designs. For Walt Disney World, uh, the biggest revolution in designs came between the Mark IV and Mark VI. They went from a totally seated design to one that allows for mostly standing room, the doors were made automatic and they added a sixth car. Originally it had five cars. Uh, these all allowed for more passengers per train and quicker turnaround. And uh, you know, one of the interesting things for me personally was I was in school at UCF up in Orlando and uh, there was a research project going on while I was there uh, in the engineering department that explored the differences between the, uh, the different models that they had where you had the, uh, the seated versus standing, the uh, doors that opened in two sides automatically versus a single door that would open and had to be opened manually. Um, and it was kind of interesting to, to think about all those things. And even though I wasn't personally involved in the research, I did have a professor of simulation who was involved. And he'd often use examples uh, in, from the study in his talks. And uh, sometimes in our homework assignments, he'd give us some pieces of data and say, okay, find this for me or do something. You know what? I have to say that that made from one of the most fun, fun college classes I ever had. It was really kind of fun to kind of think about the monorail in a practical sense. You know, here it is, it's this, this cool vehicle that they have over at Walt Disney World, but here we were trying to think about it in, in practical terms. You know, what's the inner arrival time? How long does it stay in the station? How long does it take to load? How many passengers can it have in it? And so on. Kind of a neat way to look at the world. The Mark IV monorails were used from 1971 until 1989 and 90. Uh, after their retirement, monorail Silver and Red were in the storage facility for a few years. Then monorail Red's cab was auctioned through Disney auctions in the mid-1990s. Um, and I never heard what happened to the rest. Uh, I presume at this point that they were scrapped just as their counterparts were, counterparts were disposed of in the early 1990s, uh, sold off for various things. The front cab to uh, the Mark IV monorail Blue uh, was, and I think maybe still is, located outside the Contemporary in a storage facility. Uh, when you're exiting the Contemporary on the Lagoon Beam, uh, and that's uh, the Seven Seas Lagoon Beam, so when you're on the inside part, uh, if you look to the storage sheds below you, you can see a blue tarp. The blue tarp covers the nose of the cab. So if you take a look, it may still be there. It was, uh, it was recently, but I, it may have been moved again, I'm not sure. Uh, two other trains, the Coral and the Lime Train, were sold to Bally's and MGM Grand Casinos in Las Vegas. Uh, Disney reportedly sold them for $3.5 million each, or approximately half the price they paid for a uh, Mark VI. They were used in an automated fashion for nearly a decade to ferry passengers between the hotels and looked much, as, much the same as they did at the, uh, when they were in, uh, in, uh, running at Walt Disney World. In the uh, last year or two, they've uh, been scrapped and sent to a storage yard where at some point they were covered in graffiti. And I saw a picture of them covered in graffiti, and it was just kind of a sad end to them. You know, these grand vehicles that just kind of wound up in a, uh, in a boneyard, basically, and somebody had spray-painted over them. It seemed kind of sad in a way. 
The monorail fleet, when not in service, is stored in a roundhouse on the north side of the property. Between the Magic Kingdom and the Contemporary, there's a switch that's used to bring the trains from the roundhouse spur onto the main line. There's a switch that allows the trains to be moved uh, from the spur to either line, so it could go to the uh, resort loop or to the express loop. And over near the TTC, there's another uh, switch that allows for trains to move between the express loop and the Epcot line. So you can have trains coming to all three lines and uh, basically can take them all back to the roundhouse at the end of the night. Uh, on the monorail itself, the two ends are referred to as cab one and cab two. Cab one is the front of the monorail, and it's the primary one used when the train is in service. So that's the one generally you'd see a uh, driver in. Cab two is used when they need to spend, uh, when they need to send the train in another direction. So the pilot can see where he's going, so he'll actually get out, move to the other end, uh, engage cab two, and then drive the train basically backwards. Um, the uh, drivers all know which one is cab one and cab two. I don't think most of us could determine it just by looking at it. The monorail beams themselves are made of concrete with a special polystyrene core to lighten their weight. Uh, and they actually came to uh, Walt Disney World from Washington State where they were uh, constructed. The trains themselves operate on 600 volts of DC power, uh, provided the train via the bus bar or the electrical line on the right-hand side of the train. Hence, why there are always the danger high voltage signs evident on the monorail beams. The right side of the cab one is positive, the left side is negative. Uh, the bus bar is powered by rectifiers placed throughout the beam, most notably on the, uh, the one halfway between the Epcot line and the uh, Transportation Intention Center, called the Rectifier 3 work platform. Rectifiers provide the 600 volts DC and 2,000 amps necessary to power the eight traction motors and 14 air conditioners, as well as some other miscellaneous monitoring and support systems. The trains ride on 124 wheels. So as far as uh, actual facts about the monorail, uh, the monorail length is 203 feet and 6 inches. And I, I loved a story I heard one time. Uh, one of the uh, cast members who worked on the monorail used to tell me that people would come up and say, how long's the next train? And they'd say, 203 feet, just like the last one. I love that line. The monorail weight uh, is about 54 tons, uh, the whole six cars in both cabs. Its operational readiness from uh, 71 to 81 in the Mark IV was 99.9%, which means that they were operating at peak efficiency. Uh, just amazing to me that they were able to keep them in that running order. The monorail cost approximately was about $7 million per train. Uh, each beamway cost about $1 million per mile in 1982 dollars. So if you think about why they haven't expanded out to uh, different locations, that might help to identify why they haven't done that. The operating costs uh, from October 1st, 1980 through September 31st, 1981 on the Mark IV were uh, $3,347 or $7 per train mile or uh, point, uh, about eight cents per passenger mile. They, each train has a 904 horsepower available to it. The maximum speed permitted is 40 miles per hour. The maximi maximum speed tested at Walt Disney World is 55 miles per hour. And the maximum uh, speed uh, identified by the manufacturer is 100 miles per hour. The body composition is a honeycomb covered in fiberglass uh, to make it relatively lightweight and very durable. Uh, the window type is a plexiglass, which does not permit Rain-X to be applied to it. There are 14 air conditioners, one in each of the two cabs, two in each car. Each air conditioner has the capacity to cool a three-bedroom house and can be individually controlled by the pilot. As far as basic safety equipment, there's 14 fire extinguishers, so that means two in each car, one in each cab. There are 54 emergency exits and windows. 
an emergency intercom phone, an air horn that, that goes at about 120 decibels at five feet. There are three Motorola MTX 900 megahertz trunked radios, one in each of the two cabs powered by the train and one handheld, battery powered. However, the radio in the cab will only transmit if the train is keyed in on the cab. System it uses is a MAPO moving block light stoplight system, and we'll talk about that in a little more detail in just a moment. And it has an Allison heat detection system, and it's not a suppression system, it's just a heat detection system to let them know if there's a problem. And the manufacturer of the uh, Mark VI monorails is Bombardier Corporation of Canada. Uh, they are the ones who actually did most of the uh, design and construction on this monorail. A couple of other miscellaneous facts. The monorail can be towed by the new by a, the new work tractor up the hill to the contemporary, fully loaded at 40 miles an hour. That's a pretty remarkable diesel tractor. The work tractor, if the work tractor is not available, the train can be towed by a parking tram. And apparently this has been done in the past. They've used the uh, parking tram to actually move it. Each monorail has its own personality. Coral tends to stop more easily and red will allow for faster speeds. Just like in the Mark IV version, which is kind of funny, the red was always the fastest. A monorail can make an emergency stop going at 40 miles per hour and three and a half pylons, so it's approximately 120 feet. The vehicle onboard controller, uh, so the VOBC, knows where it is located at any given time on the beam with an accuracy of approximately four centimeters. It's pretty remarkable. The monorail has the computing capacity of, uh, to operate mostly without assistance of a driver, including automated uh, video spiels. Due to guest requests, this, there will always be a pilot and the modern trains can carry 364 passengers per train. So maximum speed during normal operations is 40 miles per hour with several speed zones, which limit the uh, speed between 15 and 40 miles per hour. These speed, li speed limits are strictly enforced by the train's computer and cannot be overridden without the operator engaging a special lockout. Attempting to drive the train too quickly in, given, in a given speed zone will result in an overspeed stop, often subjecting the driver to a good-natured ridicule by his co-workers and uh, train spacing is maintained by the moving block light system, also known as MAPO for Mary Poppins. It's kind of funny how they set this up. You know, you gotta, gotta have the Disney touches in it all, right? This system establishes a number of hold points throughout the system. At any given time, there must be at least two hold points between a given train and the train ahead of it. When the train detects that there are fewer than two hold points between itself and the preceding train, the emergency brakes are immediately applied and cannot be released until sufficient spacing becomes available or the operator explicitly overrides the system. Failure to maintain adequate spacing is known as overrun and is treated as an extremely serious offense by the pilot. There are batteries on board the train to keep essential systems running, such as the Allison heat detection, communications, computer monitoring screens, interior lights, headlights, strobe, and beacon, and the emergency phones for a period of time, which is about nine minutes if everything's turned on. After that, the VOBC can no longer operate and the train would likely shut itself down. In the event that the outage might be a little longer, the pilot would be instructed to conserve power by turning off all non-essential equipment, such as the headlight and beacon. There are similar protocols for the consumption of air to operate the braking system and open the doors, although the doors do have emergency handles that allow for entry without the air in the system. The tires on the monorail, all 124 of them, are filled with nit uh, gaseous nitrogen to aid in the extinguishing of fires if the axle becomes too hot. Disney learned how to deal with this the hard way. After the Mark IV monorail Silver caught fire June 25, 1986 from an explosion of a side tire. This fire was both bl a blessing and an unfortunate event. Disney did, did learn that fiberglass, which is the, the main component of the body, does not burn e easily. 
The cause for the fire uh, was officially determined as pilot error, and with new trains came further safety precautions to keep this from happening again. Nitrogen-filled tires, beam contact warnings, and the Allison heat system helped deter this from happening. The fire totaled an entire car, and the train was inoperable for several months. There were no injuries, but cars 5 and 6 evacuated uh, to, from the train to the roof of the train. To those guests who went to the hospital and were inconvenienced by this incident, they received a three-day pass to the parks, and approximately 10 ho hotel rooms were compensated for the night. Uh, and, by the way, the Orlando Sentinel published pictures of the charred monorail in the next day's paper, and this basically irritated Disney, who prefers good press generally, and they sparred for months. And to this day, you hear very few negative stories about Disney in the local media outlets. If you want to read more about the fire, uh, you can visit the Orlando Sentinel website archives and, uh, and read the uh, articles that they published at that time. Now, of course, there have been other incidents. Uh, that's just the nature of uh, running a, something on this scale. Uh, monorail red and a work tractor collided. Uh, smoke filled the cabin in a few instances, and there have been a few reports of monorail hitting a cast member. And of course, you can read all about those in the uh, Sentinel's website as well. But until last year's incident, there had been less than a dozen documented accidents aboard the Walt Disney World monorail system since 1971. And in none of those instances had anyone lost a life or a limb. Given the number of people the monorail carries each year, around 50 million passengers, uh, it's far safer than any other mode of transportation available. Now, by the way, on last year's incident, like many crashes and other incidents like that, it was caused by several things going wrong at the same time. There had been a procedural change. There was no one at the station monitoring the trains. The person working in the switch at the roundhouse was inexperienced. The person working at the TCC apparently either didn't have their kill switch on him or uh, it uh, didn't respond quickly enough. Um, and those are some of the more critical things that happened that kind of led to this. So think about the safety that's there, 50 million guests every year, one serious accident. I don't want to diminish that accident in any way because clearly it was very serious, but it's just amazing to me how safe this vehicle really is. Now there is an interesting side note about the delivery of the Mark VI monorails in 1990. Disney discovered that the power grid did not support the extra power consumption from the Mark VI monorails. Walt Disney World filed a lawsuit against the manufacturer, which was uh, TGI, and the uh, parent company, Bombardier. And Disney cited that the 12 trains Bombardier TGI made for Disney World were not designed, manufactured, installed, and delivered as promised. And that Disney also alleges that the trains had to be substantially modified at considerable and unplanned expense before they could be used. The article continues with Bombardier's argument, Disney knew or should have known that its power distribution system did not have adequate capacity for the operation of the new monorail trains, but Disney failed to disclose the fact to the manufacturer. Vicki Vaughn uh, of the Orlando Sentinel in uh, January, uh, January 11, 1991 was responsible for those quotes. Um, Bombardier countersued for $160,000 plus interest for that money, uh, saying that Disney uh, wrongfully refused to pay uh, for work that was done on the monorails. They ultimately settled out of court, but information on the settlement on the lawsuit was never disclosed. And that concludes part one of our look at the monorails. In the next part, we'll continue on looking at the monorails and talking about some of the other features of the monorail. So stay tuned for that in our next podcast. Most of the music you're hearing on this podcast is from a friend of the show named Craig Brown. Craig does a number of things in the techno space. You can find Craig's music on myspace.com slash sound A as an apple. And my thanks also to Doug over at geekacres.net for his rendition of a Jack Wagner classic. And now we've reached our destination in the 21st century. Yes, I know, it went by so fast. But don't worry, because the future is always in front of us. 
Thanks for riding with us. Please collect your personal belongings and step onto the moving platform. The platform and your car are moving at equal yet opposite speeds, so watch your head and step. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, or would just like to ask Dave a question about Disney planning or anything else, send him an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. And now I gotta be moving along. He's looking for a little more adventure. I'm heading for a little bit of fun now. He's looking for a little more excitement. Time to be moving along. It's time to be moving along. Time to be moving along.